This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So Paul Volberding is professor of medicine. He's associate chair for global health for the department, uh, head of the AIDS Research Institute. And more relevant to this discussion is really one of the uh, founding fathers of the field of HIV uh, medicine uh, there from the very beginning and really established UCSF's presence in, uh, in HIV and AIDS. So this is going to be a little bit of a trip down memory lane, and then uh, we'll, I like it. <laughs> we'll, end up, uh, we'll end up in the present eventually, but we're going to kind of, for, particularly for younger folks here who, uh, who probably were not born uh, when all of this started. I used to uh, joke about that, but it's absolutely the case. It is, it is true, yeah. So um, you're trained as an oncologist. Um, you, I, I think when AIDS started, you were finishing your onc fellowship. So tell us about the early days and before AIDS and HIV hit. What were you intending to do with your career? Um, I was really always going to be a bench scientist. I uh, loved basic science and did a summer camp. National Science Foundation when I was in high school and when I was at the University of Chicago as an undergrad, I worked in a virology lab um, really all through college and worked in a virology lab all through med school at Minnesota um, and came here <clears throat> really to work with Jay Levy because I was interested in cancer but really interested in viruses and that was at the time thought that viruses would be found to be the cause of common human cancers. And so that's why a lot of people that did retroviruses, like, like I was studying, uh, were studying in the context of oncology. So what happened, um, was before HIV came along, of course, um, so I did my fellowship in seven, from 78 to 81. And um, during that time, I decided that I really actually like clinical medicine more than being in, in the, in the, at the bench. Um, and it was a really hard decision uh, to think of that all of my kind of life to that point, I had been thinking about being at the bench and then found myself really deciding that that wasn't, uh, just wasn't turning me on. Um, and Merle Sandy, uh, an ID guy who had come in 1980 to be the head of medicine at the general, uh, wanted to start an oncology division. There wasn't one. Um, and so I was offered uh, a division chief job. <laughs> right out of fellowship. Right out of fellowship. Wow. And, and it just doesn't happen. Uh, and on the, my first day on the How job... How did they take care of cancer patients at the county before? So there was a hematologist there, um, but the oncology was done by uh, faculty from Parnassus that would go down once a week to oncology clinic and just see patients. And the fellow mostly ran the service there, which as a fellow was just a fantastic experience because you really could do it pretty much yourself, but you did have backup. Um, but anyway, I, I went to the general to start an oncology division, and literally on my first day, July 1st, 1981, I saw the first KS patient, Kaposi sarcoma patient, uh, that was admitted. Um, so it was an absolute start of the epidemic. Um, and it was like I was kind of perfectly trained for it. Um, you know, it turned out to be a retrovirus. I knew that. Um, the early part of the epidemic was all about palliative care. And as a Well, before we fast forward into what, what, you've, what happened, okay, you see this patient. I can patient, talk about this. <laughs> this patient has 
a cancer that normally was seen in older men, and this was a young gay man. 22-year-old, yeah. So what did you think this was? Cancer. Okay, good. You know? Um, <laughs> it, it, it really, uh, and that was a couple weeks before the very first reports of KS. It, the, so had there been any, when you saw that patient, had there been anything in the literature yet, or was, was there any buzz about this yet? Uh, not really. MMWR came out two weeks before I started with a cluster of four cases of PCP from, uh, from L.A. Right. Um, but it wasn't clear that KS and PCP were, uh, were connected, um, although we pretty quickly realized it when we started to see a lot of opportunistic infections in our KS patients. Um, so, yeah. so did this, so you see this patient, did the light bulb go off and say, this is really interesting and I wanna, I'm going to devote the next 30 years of my life to this? Or what, what was the, your thought process as you saw it and, 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 and said that, that right. this is something unique? So one thing I've learned about memory is that you, 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 met, you remember yourself in the best possible right. light. You know, it's like, so I'm sure I knew right away what it was. No, I, um, I, I did know it was, it was really strange from, this, from the start, though. I mean, I, I had studied for my onboards. didn't bother studying about KS because you never see that. Yeah. Um, had you ever seen a case before, no. by the way? You'd never uh, seen a case? Never seen a yeah. case. Um, and so when I, when I saw the patient and read about it, it was like, this is wrong. You know, it's a 22-year-old young, young guy. Um, and so really right from the very first, um, I knew, you know, not just me, but I think those of us that were seeing the patients knew it was something, it was something new. Okay. And then I imagine over the next, I mean, it was pretty explosive, like over the next several months, you probably saw a whole bunch of different patients. A lot of patients. Um, and it, it's sort of a long story, but I uh, run into a, um, a dermatologist here at Parnassus because to make my salary, one of the things I did was to um, work in the melanoma clinic here right across the street at the ACC. And I ran into a dermatologist there, Marcus Conant, a, a gay man, and, and he had been seeing some of these patients because he was well-known in the gay community and the, the physicians would refer him these patients. Uh, so together we had a total of just a few patients with KS, but we decided to start a KS clinic in the derm area at the ACC on the third floor. But I was the oncologist, so we referred them from Parnassus to the general. First time in history that that's ever right. happened. <laughs> um, uh, so the numbers really grew, and we ended up seeing, I think, almost all of the KS patients in the city for quite a while. When did you know that this was going to be sort of an unprecedented epidemic, that something absolutely, uh, this was monumental? Um, early on. I mean, it, the numbers just kept climbing like crazy. Um, and I remember Marcus Conan at one point saying, wait until there's a thousand patients with this disease, then people will take notice of it. And of course, by the time he was saying that, there were already probably 30,000 infected people in the city alone. Um, it, 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 when it hit, came here in probably 1977, the virus, um, by the time we were seeing our first patients, it had already infected probably 50% of, uh, of gay men um, in the city. So. Okay, so now it, over the course of a few months, it becomes clear this is a, it's a huge deal. It's complex medically. We don't know what to do. The patients are all dying, and they're gay men. Yep. So there's issues around the politics of the gay community and stigma and all that. So just tell us how all of that played out as you 
pretty right. junior faculty member trying to manage all of that. So it was, it was, it was just, I mean, I, I don't want to use the word fun, but it was really exciting um, because we, were, we knew we were seeing something new. No one had done it before. Um, almost all the physicians involved in the early response were my age, uh, 31 or so, because um, we had just finished training and had space in our careers to d jump into something new like this. Um, so um, along the way, really very quickly, actually with my first patient, um, patients were often you know, estranged from their families. They had been kicked out of their homes or left because they're gay. Uh, they end up here. Um, they didn't have family in the way we usually think about it to take care of them when they were uh, outpatients. Uh, so really right from the start, uh, we said, well, what, what is out there? And we discovered that there were organizations in the gay community um, that were willing to sort of pitch in and help. And other organizations got started quickly. Um, and so really almost immediately it became as exciting to work with developing that kind of network of medical and community-based uh, care and organizations. Um, and I think that's maybe one of the most important things that happened here in the city. What had prepared you in your career? You were prepared for the science, maybe prepared for the clinical work, maybe a little bit of the leadership. What prepared you for the politics of this? Uh, nothing except um, I thought it was interesting and, um, and it was a challenge. There was nobody to ask kind of advice on it, so it was definitely being, you know, making it up as I went along. Uh, Merle Sandy, who was my boss, um, really gave me free reign. Um, he could have be been really, you know, overly involved and kind of controlling, and he could be. Mm -hmm. um, but, but in this sense, he just let me run with it. Um, and I made some really good decisions along the way. Colleagues, Connie Wafsey was my really close co-founder of the clinic, and I think she had a good instincts politically as well. So what were the big decisions you had to make in the first few years that could have gone one way or another in terms of how you organized things? So probably the biggest uh, event um, was at the end of 1982 in one of the residents. Um, so we were using for exam rooms the rooms that the house staff used for sleeping rooms at night. Um, so the beds that you guys were sleeping in uh, were our exam tables during the day. Um, seriously. <laughs> and I was an intern in 83, and I'm not sure I knew that. So. <laughs> and there would occasionally be some, you know, substances on the bedspreads or something. And uh, one, of the, one, one of the residents who was, who was very, very pregnant in December of 82 said, do we know this is safe? Because by then we'd been getting a sense that this was an infectious disease. Um, what, what, what did people think it was before that? Oh, there was a lot of theories. Um, um, poppers and the recreational drugs used in the gay community was a theory for a while. Meaning it was some sort of toxicity to a toxicity drug? Toxicity to a drug or kind of repeated episodes of STIs that, would, that accumulated and damaged the immune system was one theory that was passing around. Uh, but when it, when it became clear that it was an infection from a case here at Parnassus of a baby that was transfused at birth um, and who died quite quickly from what looked like AIDS at a time when Kids didn't get AIDS, right? Um, so Art Amon, who is the uh, pediatric immunologist here that, uh, that described the case, described the first case of transfusion-related AIDS and the first case of pediatric AIDS in the same, in the same patient. And th that was really when 
we knew it was an infection. And when the, when the resident said to the CEO and to Merle, do we, do we know that it's safe to sleep in the same beds? People went a little bit crazy and said, actually, we don't know that. Um, and so that's when they found uh, Ward 86 um, really quickly. It was an empty uh, ward at the time in one of the old red brick buildings. And they gave that to us as a, our AIDS clinic. And that was the first AIDS clinic in the world. Um, so that was, the, that was a big moment. Yeah. I remember another big decision was the starting an inpatient AIDS right. ward, AIDS, AIDS unit. So how did that happen? Uh, that was in the middle of 83. Um, before that, the, the quality of the care of the patients, the general always responded incredibly well to this, but there were cases of you know, trays being left on the floor outside the door uh, by nurses that were afraid. Um, and so really the nurses themselves um, said, let's get together and do something. And a number of, uh, of nurses, most of them gay, gay or lesbian, um, uh, decided to approach the hospital and, and offer to staff uh, a ward. And it was, interestingly, the same ward that I'd been using as my clinic, um, 5B, um, at first. Um, and so that opened up, and it was really a nurse-led uh, operation, really right from the start. Cliff Morrison was the nurse who was the, the head of it. Um, doctors were obviously involved, and the hospital was really supportive. But that was the world's first AIDS inpatient unit. Um, I remember some discussion then about, is that the right call to be yeah, yeah, segregating yeah. patients into their own units? And does that add? Uh, how did you think about all those issues? Uh, we definitely talked about that a lot, um, but decided that the, you know, improving the quality of the experience for the patient was going to be more important. And there was no question that, that that ended up being the case. Merle and I talked about whether or not there should be uh, sort of a quarantine air to it. Again, this is before the virus was identified. Um, and I actually remember myself arguing for, you know, entry doors and hand washing. and Meaning you didn't know if it stuff. could it be inhalational. And right. And Merle said, no, we're going to, it's going to be an open I mean, just like every other uh, unit in the hospital, and you know, and that was kind of gutsy at the time because mm-hmm. we didn't really know. So, did you fear for your own life ever? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I was one of the uh, first people to have a, um, a, a helper suppressor ratio done. Um, that was the test where the T4s and T8s were measured, and my ratio it just gave blood as a part of a normal. Uh, Participant, one of Andrew Moss's ep- epidemiology studies, and my ratio is like 0.9 or something, which is it's, a, it's low, um, but the numbers go around a lot, and so that made me concerned. Um, and I was, we were having m- my wife Molly Cook was uh, an active AIDS clinician at the time as well, so we were both seeing patients um, initially with no protective anything. The the idea of using gloves to Start IVs was something that we absolutely did not do. Um, uh, and so when it, when it was clear that it was an infection, I think Molly and I both said, this is not good. And we were having our kids. Our first baby was born uh, just a couple weeks after I started at the county. Um, and then we had two other children born in 84 and 87. Uh, so the fear was so great that we didn't even talk about it. You know, we have a good relationship. We talk about most things, uh, but this is something we just, it was 
too scary. Wow. And uh, talk about the first needle sticks, because I remember yeah. that began to happen, obviously. People are a lot of blood flying around. Especially before we use gloves. Before yeah. we use gloves. So they, I'm sure people came to you and yeah. were worried about that. So how did, yeah. how did people think about that when they started getting no, stuck? We, uh, we worried a lot. Actually, the needle stick, I remember the clearest, was a patient. Uh, we did, our clinics were almost all just drop-in clinics because the patients were so sick they couldn't sometimes survive for a scheduled appointment. Um, patient came in. I was sort of the person that normally would have responded to this patient, needed an LP, um, and I was busy. Molly volunteered to do it, and she got a needle stick from the, from the LP needle. Um, and this is just before AZP became uh, available, or it may have been kind of a little bit on the scene, um, but we didn't do anything. Um, and again, worried a lot. Um, yeah, I remember when one of the faculty members got stuck and developed hepatitis from the stick, and we, oh, yeah. we wondered whether he would get developed HIV. That was, yeah. I think that was the first time it became yeah. clear that it yeah. was less transmissible than, than, hepatitis, uh, than hepatitis was. Uh, you were s still a pretty junior person, but you were involved now on the national scene. You were dealing with the feds in terms of research. Uh, talk about the national politics at the time. This was under President Reagan, if I recall. Yeah, so this is an area where people have different memories. Um, it took the feds a while to respond, but I submitted my first NIH grant um, in 1982, and it was funded um, in 1983. So at that, that time I was still a brand new, freshly minted assistant professor, so it wasn't that there was no response. Um, but for those of us seeing what this epidemic was doing, it was also clear that it wasn't enough of a response. Um, but I was on an early IOM uh, committee, um, and we recommended um, that we spend as much on research as we estimated to be spending on care, which at the time was thought to be about a billion dollars a year, and that the money should not come from other kind of parts of the NIH budget, um, which was a brilliant move because then we could kind of grow AIDS research without immediately kind of having to confront breast cancer and, and other uh, interest groups. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, with that decision, the, the money started to flow pretty, pretty quickly. But I remember the president didn't utter the oh, word well, AIDS for yeah, no, many, many years. Ronald Reagan was the, was the president and didn't mention the word AIDS publicly until 1987. After um, 100,000 people had yeah, died or something. And, so. and despite the fact that he, as an actor, had obviously many gay friends, um, but didn't, still couldn't kind of mention it. So the patients you took care of all died? Everyone. In the, everyone, and over how long a period of time generally? Well, I mean, people would come in, you know, with active cryptococcus and they would die quickly. Um, KS patients lasted longer. KS tended to happen a bit earlier in the disease course than some of the, uh, some of the opportunistic infections. CMV retinitis happened when your CD4 cells were 10, often, um, and those people died within months. Uh, the average life expectancy was said to be about a year. And, and something that people kind of can't quite believe, but this is the most lethal infectious disease we've ever seen. The untreated 98% die. Um, so it's much worse than Ebola or smallpox. Um, it's a really bad infection. 
Yeah. Yeah, and I, because there was no HIV test, it was when you came in, you were already really yeah, sick, sick. Yeah. and a pretty good chance you are going to die of what it was that brought you in. And for a while we talked about, in quotes in the air here now, but healthy seropositives. So these are people that were antibody positive but were ostensibly healthy. And it took us a while to really realize that all of those people were going to progress to, to AIDS and die. And so the term healthy seropositive in retrospect is kind of pretty crazy. How do you manage this in terms of your own psyche, taking care of all these young people who died? It was, um, it was really hard. Um, they were the, you know, I was just out of my fellowship. I was 31. Um, the patients were typically my age, um, and their parents were the age of my parents. So it was like really hard. I mean, if you get once you get past the point of saying, "Well, they're gay and I'm straight, therefore it's not me dying in that bed," that that defense doesn't last very long. And so it was really hard. Uh, really hard. And um, in our clinic, uh, a lot of the people working in the clinic in all capacities were gay men themselves. Um, people wanted to, you know, help out. Um, and they were sick in some cases. They were dying. Their partners were dying. Um, and so the, the pressure was just enormous. At one point, we called in a clinical psychologist to come and help do group therapy for the, for the whole program. So um, I guess one of the early, as I think about sort of nodes in this, uh, in this trajectory, one of them was the discovery of HIV. And how did that change things when we knew what the cause was? Well, it was, it was interesting, again, because I kind of was a retrovirologist. And so when it was discovered, I went, amazing, you know. Um, but there was, there was that controversy because the French discovered it, and then Bob Gallo discovered French virus a year later, um, <laughs> literally the same virus. Um, and meanwhile, Jay Levy here, who I'd come to work with uh, before HIV came along, actually independently um, discovered it as well. Um, and so uh, we, kn we knew the nature of the virus, um, and very quickly... So this was people, I mean, I recall this, it was an international controversy over who actually discovered it and lawsuits yeah. and... Uh, and in the end, one of meetings. the French got the Nobel Prize, and, and the American didn't, um, and Jay Levy didn't either. So it's whatever. But um, right after the virus uh, was discovered, it, it <clears throat> almost immediately uh, developed an antibody test, um, and that's what really changed things. You know, when we could, first of all, I was one of the first to be tested because I was frankly worried that I had it. Um, when I was negative, then it really made it possible for me to be incredibly firm when anyone raised the question of casual transmission because I said, if I don't have it, nobody's going to get it um, by kind of everyday life. So you were, you were saying that you can't catch it casually, but you really weren't in the back of your mind completely sure about it. Yeah, yeah. And now you were pretty sure because no one's been, had been more exposed than you were. And we, you know, we really did try to be completely honest in everything. We said the press were uh, all over this. And it's, again, the people today can't imagine. There were, new, there were newspapers, stories about this in every single day on the front page of the Chronicle and the New York Times, um, every day. Um, in my program, we had a full-time media coordinator. We had camera crews in the hallways, sometimes lined up. Um, and so the, the, the information out there was, was... Can you imagine this at the age, in the age of Facebook and Twitter? It would have exploded, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it would have been... 
sort of ten yeah. x of yeah. what it of what it was. So, all right, you discover HIV, and or not you personally, but <laughs> someone did. And, in uh, retrospect, they should have stayed in the lab. Yeah. How uh, how did it change things day to day? So now you knew something more about the transmission, but patients still were getting this disease and dying. It, it didn't change that. Um, it changed uh, how we thought about it when we realized that all the people that were infected, that were seropositive but still healthy, were fated uh, to die of this disease. Mm-hmm. So that, that caused a huge effect. Um, but it was a couple years before the first drugs were, were developed when, you know, when there began to be something we could do. Yeah. But by the, those, those years, it was all palliative care. So even though we knew the virus, we could detect it in you before you were sick, but still it was a death sentence at that point. And every patient, I think without exception that I can remember, would come in when they were diagnosed and say, I know this is bad, but I'm going to beat it. I mean, I think almost exactly those, those words. Yeah. And I'd sit there going, nobody beats it. Right. So AZT was the first drug that, that worked. I think you were involved in some of the early trials at... Uh, anything, anything about that story that was particularly interesting? And I, I think I remember. There have been movies I might, about that. I know. <laughs> I, I think I was with you when, when at least the first paper came out, yeah. showing that it, showing that it worked. Yeah. I mean, did people have high hopes for it, or it was, it, was that a surprise? Well, the first study was done. Monotherapy was done in people really quite sick, um, and within the six months of the trial, I think there were sixteen deaths in the placebo and three in the AZT or something like that. Um, so it had a striking benefit in the short run. It was approved almost immediately. Um, and it did help some people. Um, but it was very controversial because it was the first drug. So, so the price of AZT was set the standard for the price of HIV treatment. And it was thought to be far too high uh, by the community. And it caused the birth really of, of uh, of HIV activism, um, ch- you know, charging that the that the drug company was making a profit from the deaths of these people, it was seen as too toxic. Uh, AZT at first uh, we we used it in doses that were later realized to be at least four times higher than they should have been um, because it was developed so quickly, um, and it was given every four hours um, around the clock. Imagine taking drugs every four hours. People all had these little pocket beepers that would go off every four hours. And if you were, um, so what time would you set those for? Um, You would set it at four, eight, and 12, right? So if you're giving a talk at a community organization and it hit one of those hours, the room would go off and page it. (laughs) Wow. It was amazing. Talk about the activists for a sec. You sort of said the AZT was the birth of, of the activist movement. Obviously, they were involved from the very beginning. Right, right. And it shaped, it shaped the response in a, in a way that was sort of unlike anything before. So how did that play out in your world? Yeah, sure. Activism started before AZT and started, especially in New York, where the, the mayor was widely thought to be a closeted gay man. Um, uh, did nothing. There was just no services provided whatsoever. And the contrast in San Francisco, where Mayor Feinstein had become a mayor because of Moscone and Milk's uh, murders, um, was inclined to be very responsive. And so we got, you know, every time I needed to expand my clinic, I just wrote a letter to the mayor and we got it. Um, and, and, and we had all these organizations helping out in New York. 
the epidemic was much, much harder. It was a lot of injection drug users, really poor people, um, and, and the city did nothing. So the, the first of the, of the activism is really around services, um, especially in New York City. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in the old days, you would have been taking care of patients and doing research. Now you have a community group that's intensely interested in what you're doing that may may not believe that you're doing everything you can do or the funding is adequate. How did that influence your work? So we, uh, I spent a lot of time with community organizations um, and uh, you know, at every forum in town um, to, to, again, kind of spread the information that we had. Um, and there, there, was, you know, some, there was one level of activism that said that what we were doing, I, I was accused of genocide. Um, because AZT was thought to be genocide. Um, some people didn't believe that HIV was the cause. Some people thought that AZT was killing people. Um, and so it was. Can you imagine? I'm just thinking now, this was in the era before fake news. I mean, yeah, the, yeah, where yeah. people generally believe science, and, yeah. and, and, and uh, I'm trying to, trying to fathom it what any be of this very would have been like. Today. Yeah, yeah. been remarkable. Uh, did you feel like the activists were helpful? Um, qualified, yes. Um, helpful, but sometimes really difficult. Um, it was, it, activism is in your face. I mean, people really literally shouting at you in your face. Um, that's not easy to take, um, especially if you, you think, think you're, you're trying, you're trying, to, you're do trying right to do your best. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I didn't enjoy that part of it. Um, on the other hand, um, we developed really good relationships with the AIDS Foundation, with Project Inform. And it was no, there's no question that it helped us um, politically and also helped in terms of the, the connection with the community of people affected. When did you have the sense that it might actually, the disease might shift into this sort of manageable chronic disease that we now think of it? Um, the early years, so AZT was first developed and uh, approved in 87. Um, and there were a couple other drugs in that class uh, of the of NRTIs that were developed, and we started using some of them in double combinations. Um, really, with my background in oncology, with combination therapy and with TB as a model, where combination therapy is is used, it didn't take didn't take a brilliant person to have the idea of using combinations uh, of drugs. Um, and two drugs seemed to be a little bit better than one, um, but almost as soon as we started to see the data from the two drug trials. Uh, a third drug was uh, was added to the scene, the protease inhibitors, uh, and the NNRTIs were both developed very early on, um, and both of them are uh, both are really potent drugs. Um, and when when those were added to the two drug uh, therapy, the world changed, um, and people really literally recovered. People really sick recovered with mm-hmm. three drug therapy, and we saw. The first of those reports in January eighty uh, or ninety six, at the at the at the Croix at the one of the main conferences, and it was so startling. Even though I heard the data, that didn't it didn't really register um, until the summer of that year when the international conference in Vancouver ninety six, um, where we saw the data basically the same data again, uh, but more of it, and you know. I had tears in my eyes talking to uh, one of the Wall Street Journal reporters because it was, it was a cure. You know, this was going to be it. And, of course, 
that wasn't the case, but the, but the re recoveries were staggering, mm -hmm. really amazing. So uh, I'm going to open up to folks in the audience in a minute, but, but uh, you mentioned in the beginning something that I, I had the same feeling, slightly un uncomfortable feeling that it was fun or exciting. It was incredibly exciting. Incredibly it was exciting. like you, you, know, you, you knew you were in the middle of something that was absolutely monumental. Uh, was there any uh, ambivalence? Not ambivalence, obviously, that people are getting better and all that's, that's unadulteratedly wonderful, but, but that HIV became a little bit boring? Was that a, an issue for the folks like you who were there from the very beginning? Um, not, that, not early on, because the first uh, potent therapy was also really difficult and very, um, very technical. We had to worry a lot about drug resistance. And, um, and so the challenges of managing that, there's a lot of side effects uh, from the first uh, potent therapies. So managing those side effects was just about as challenging as managing the death from AIDS. Um, so I don't think uh, it became boring then. I think uh, what's obviously now with it, one pill once a day with no side effects, it's, there's just not as much excitement in the, in the antiviral part of HIV management. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So because I, I mean, my sense was there were some of the pioneers who <laughs> were very, from the very beginning the disease shifted so much, and it was such a different thing with HIV after the therapy came out, and that some people felt like this is, is not, the, not the Well, yeah, and some people left the field, but not, not many. Um, and, you know, I think we wouldn't let ourselves think about that too much because the, obviously the benefits in terms of our patients were so, were so strong. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So you were saying before, before we started that, that it's how hard the amount of research money going in has gone down some and the interest from pharma companies has gone down. Is it because people feel like we're kind of done? Is that where, oh, where, where people are? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, um, and there's no question that the therapies now, I mean, I'll bet most house staff don't have any patients with AIDS in the hospital anymore. Uh, just um, patients who don't take their meds? Yeah. Um, so, no, it's, um, and I think that there's a, you know, we're trying to find a cure uh, for HIV now. Um, but I was talking to Bob earlier and pointing out that if you're a sexually active man with HIV and you're now cured, you still would need to take PrEP, which is still a single pill once a day with two medicines. So the only gain for those people would be, you know, losing one medicine from your combination pill. So it's, I think that the bar now for developing new drugs is so high. The drugs we have now are so potent. Um, that it's, it's, I mean, it's really a chronic disease. Yeah. So as you think back, it seems like you made a lot of very good decisions early on that about the people you surrounded yourself with, the way you organized the program, both inpatient and outpatient. Anything that you feel like you didn't get right, you would do differently? Um, well, I would have stayed in the lab a little bit longer. And <laughs> <laughs> Won that Nobel Prize, right? Nobel Prize. No, not. Not really. I mean, I, you know, I, I devoted myself so much to this that I, you know, I frankly felt that I was neglecting my kids more than was good. Um, I would like to have a redo of that and kind of find some way to be a little bit better. Um, uh, but no, not really. I think, um, you know, I think the response, and it wasn't just me, it was the whole enterprise here in San Francisco. It, it, worked so well. It was such a community effort, and it was 
it made being in medicine um, so much more than just medicine. Because mm -hmm. really, I'm, I wasn't sort of going into medicine thinking about public health, but working definitely in a public health uh, setting was another part of the excitement. And working with the politicians, you know, I think the, the, the relationship that I had with Feinstein and later with Pelosi, and those are really important, and, and you get to see kind of how much value um, uh, can come to us with, uh, with effective leaders. What are the lessons about uh, a career in medicine that you take away from your experience? Well, I mean, the most obvious was that if you find yourself on a path that no longer seems as exciting as you thought it would, it's okay to change. Um, and I'm, you know, I joke about staying in the lab, but I, it was clear that I was not meant to be in the lab. Um, so, so being flexible in your career pathways. Um, if you see something new, um, sometimes it can be really great to just jump on it and do it. To be, it takes courage, I think. You don't think of it as that, but I think it is. Um, and basically to trust yourself. And Sandra, Merle was an important mentor for you, it sounds like. You had a few, it was mostly young people, because nobody knew anything about this. There was no senior person. But were there other more senior folks that helped you along the way? Yeah, I mean, there, there, yeah, there were some really great kind of uh, senior people. Chuck Carpenter, uh, who was a grand, he's still alive, old man of medicine, um, who really responded. But when, you know, when the Ebola thing happened, I thought a lot about this, because I could have jumped in and responded to that, and I didn't. Um, and it was, you know, so I could imagine the young people that were responding to Ebola would be just as critical of me as I was of some of the uh, statesmen of medicine when HIV happened. They didn't respond, uh, but they didn't because they had full careers. You know, right. they had, they had, you know, they had things that excited them that they were doing, and so just the fact that there was something new didn't mean they really they should have dumped that and, and jumped on to HIV. Um, so I... It's a bandwidth issue that it, when HIV started it, that's it, why it, it, it was so explosive, and the people that had the bandwidth to do it were young people who were starting out and saw it as an opportunity. Yeah, across the board. I mean, here Donald Abrams was another real pioneer, and he was a year younger than me in, in oncology. Yeah. That was part of the response. Yeah, I remember when I was a resident 83 to 86 that you know, a huge amount of papers were being published by in our residency yeah. because you see a few and you now are the world experts in, in needle sticks or in crypto yeah. or something like that. Great. We so, it, we, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. probably many people don't know that one of Bob's first jobs was working uh, for me with the AIDS conference in 1990. Um, so, he had a role and wrote a book about it. So. <laughs> yeah, it was an amazing time. Yeah, and actually, one of the I wrote an article at the end of residency uh, on the impact of AIDS on residency training because I yeah, yeah. realized, it was in the New England Journal, realizing that it had completely transformed. Up to 75% of hospitalized patients on the services were AIDS. Um, yeah, so at the county, if you had a service of 14 patients, good chance seven, eight, nine of them would yeah. be AIDS patients. Two or three of them yeah. would be in the unit with pneumocystis and dying and a few had crypto, crypto meningitis. It was, it was pretty amazing. Code, you know, yeah. it's almost hard to imagine. See if any folks have questions or, or thoughts. Yeah. Hi, my name is Katie. I'm one of the chief residents here. Hi. Um, thank you so much. Um, so one thing I was that struck me was thinking about like all of the progress and how HIV for us as we're training now is totally a chronic disease as you were yep, to. Yep. 
But when you think about it on, a, on an international scale, and I spent a couple months in Botswana when I was in medical school, and I would say the ratio. You go to Penn or Harvard? I went to Penn. <laughs> <laughs> um, the ratio of patients on our service sort of mirrored how what Bob just alluded to yeah. back when you guys were in training. Um, and I wonder, like, what you see as, um, like, from an international perspective, like, why can't we, why can't we make the outcomes in other areas match what we found here? Well, um, Botswana is actually a place that's doing pretty well. Um, and uh, half the people internationally that are thought to be infected are on treatment now. Um, no one would have guessed that we would get that far. Um, I'm really concerned about the rise of nationalism and um, this America first mentality where I think because um, the world needs America to spend money to get these treatments uh, internationally, as we're a really rich country, uh, and so if we pull back, uh, you know, millions of people are at risk. Um, you know, it's going to be hard to replicate San Francisco internationally um, because here, you know, we're close to we've met the 90-90-90 goals. I think we're close to having almost everyone that's infected aware of it and on treatment, um, but we've made progress. So I, you could look at it positive or, or negative, but I think, I, I think it's going to continue. Um, and I think it's still an exciting thing for young people to get involved in global health. Um, and HIV has been a really important part of that. Um, and UCSF, as everyone knows, is, has these massive programs um, delivering treatment to people. Do you worry, though, that, that independent of America First and, and nationalism, that as this country no longer perceives AIDS as a dominant problem, that its interest in AIDS generally will go down, and therefore its interest in supporting AIDS programs sure. internationally will go down. Absolutely. Are you seeing that? Um, no, so, so far not. Um, I mean, the PEPFAR and Global Fund contributions have gone down somewhat, um, but I think generally it still enjoys broad bipartisan support. Um, we've done a good job so far. But you remind me as a chief resident to tell a, a little quick story that Molly, my wife, was a chief resident at the county from 80 to 81. And she has stories of, if you can imagine being a chief resident where you hear morning report, um, interesting cases. There were a lot of AIDS patients that were admitted to the general before I came in July. Um, because, and she said, it was just stereotypic, young gay man with X. Um, and so, Somebody missed an opportunity to put that together, and so watch out for these new epidemics because <laughs> <laughs> chief residents could play an important role. Keep our eyes open. Yeah. yeah. Other questions or, or comments? Yeah. So you obviously are doing a lot of work now on cure and vaccine stuff, uh, primarily cure here at UC, but the researchers who are focusing on that have really different approaches to it and different ideas of both what it means, whether it's a functional cure or in, and how to achieve yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So can you talk a little bit about those competing differences and what you think is most promising? Well, so um, I kind of joked about needing to take PrEP even if you were cured, um, but cure would be, it would be tremendous. I mean, I mean just from a totally an ego standpoint, it would be great to have been there at the start and to be there when, when we have a cure. Um, there, the, the challenge, uh, there are a lot of challenges to cure, but um, 
one of the things that people are exploring are cell therapy or gene therapy, and it's kind of cool and you know CRISPR and all all that um, might very well um, play a role. Um, but it would be bad, I think, if we ended up with a cure that was only available to people that could afford a bone marrow transplant. Um, the parts of the world that really need it are the are the developing economies. Um, so scalability of a cure uh, would be, to me, really high in my list of what I'd like to see. Um, so we're exploring here sort of low-tech uh, approaches to, to cure, um, but you know you have to be pretty optimistic to think that uh, those are going to so completely eliminate the latent uh, reservoir virus that people can go off therapy for the rest of their lives. I, I, I have to Try to believe it, but it's it's going to it's going to be a lot. And what's the state of uh, of vaccine research? Uh, vaccine has been very difficult. Uh, there's a you know there was one trial in Thailand that was positive, but thirty percent effective. Um, people sort of question some of the statistics there. Even um, that's the only trial that's shown any hint of, of protection. There's another kind of replicate of that trial going on now in South Africa. Um, so we'll see. Uh, uh, but I, I think this, is such, this has been such a, an amazingly well-protected virus from immune control um, that I, I don't foresee a vaccine in, in my lifetime. But. Yeah, and, you, and I mean, this issue, I hadn't thought of it until you said it before, that the the funding and the issue and the interest of both governments and pharma companies to do this has has gone down in part because they think the problem is not as yeah. big a problem as it once was. Sure. Sort of independent of the the global uh, right. solo the yeah. problem. That's actually that that's there's only only, only a couple of companies left making anti uh, HIV drugs. Um, yeah. Started out with large numbers. Sure. Any uh, last questions or comments? Yeah. There was there were. There's now established reports about broadly neutralizing antibodies um, from the group at Rockefeller. Yeah, I was yeah. wondering whether you thought they would be kind of the next generation of maintenance therapy because it would be a lot easier for someone to adhere to. But then at the same time, there's the issue of cost and kind of how you think. Yeah, so BNABs are um, really very exciting. We're actually working with the Rockefeller group in the clinical trial that we're putting together now uh, in our cure group. Um, and, and his, uh, Michel Rosenzweig, uh, his um, neutralizing antibody is one that we're going to be uh, we're using. Um, but he, even the studies of, so this is, gets technical, but, but they're not broadly neutralizing enough. And so now it looks like you need to use like combinations of BNABs um, because the virus will Kind of some virus will have already resistance to the to the neutralization of even ones that are designed to be quite broad in their neutralization. Uh, people are looking at them uh, as a prep, um, as a injectable um, uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis trial going on here in the city, uh, looking at that, or as uh, uh, you know, uh, long uh, long half-life uh, therapy. Um, I, I would guess that that's not going to go too far because the cost of, of them is, is so high. Um, you, we worry about any long-acting uh, treatment, especially in the in the poorly adherent people where they're being kind of directed. Because if you're poorly adherent, 
um, to regular ther therapies. And if you then are poorly adherent to the long-acting therapies, you have the, you have the risk of, get, of inciting a lot of resistance because if you don't show up for your you know, Q3 month appointment, um, you're going to have a tail of drug or antibody still in the system, and that's a recipe for selection for resistance. So we're, we're exploring it. There are clinical trials that are going on, uh, both with monoclonals and with long-acting drugs. Some of the, uh, some of the, um, uh, some of the drugs now uh, with half-lives of, of weeks um, are being investigated. Interesting. All right. Any last questions? All right. Let us quit. Paul, thank you so much. It's terrific. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.